I'm sure all of you have been seeing some of the horrifying pictures on CNN of what is happening over in Kurdistan, basically in northern Iraq along the Turkish border. When you look at the weather outside today and then you think, what if I were out in this with but a thin white sheet of plastic and the few clothes that I could have carried away 150 or 200 miles on my back with no utensils, with no firewood, with no food, with just nothing. I don't know if you saw it this morning. We saw the special weekend edition of what is happening over there, and it really is like a journey into Dante's picture of what hell must look like when you see mothers weeping over a stiffening body of a dead baby, and it just breaks your heart. We were talking this morning, some of our family, my son and daughter-in-law were over for breakfast. Once in a while, you tend to even feel guilty. My wife was saying when she had come back from a shopping trip yesterday afternoon in Brookshire's supermarket, you look at these shelves absolutely brimming with goods. You look at a home that we're privileged to live in, at the wonderful breakfast we had this morning, and you think of the people in this world who have never even seen anything like that, and the people who are suffering and dying. I had to comment that it's too much to take upon our shoulders, that we cannot and should not feel guilty, that if CNN had been able to follow Pol Pot and his pogroms back in the 1975 period when more than one million people in Cambodia were systematically exterminated, that that might have looked like a hell of its own. I got to thinking a little more of the incredible blessing we experience of living in a nation which began its revolution against a mother country under a despotic king who had forgotten a little bit about what King John had been forced to sign in the Magna Carta. I wonder if you know your history well enough to understand that only in the concept of the separation of church and state do we enjoy the incredible cornucopia America, the notion that every man is equal, that every man has equal opportunity, that a person can own and work his own private piece of land, even the incredible notion that public information media like microphones and loudspeakers can be purchased as a private enterprise on behalf of some company and that one human being can purport to be explaining points of doctrine, religion, sociology, history, language, or even entertainment or whatever else to some other person and make a business out of it. Think, if you will, for a moment back in history at indulgent, indolent Spain when the Spanish Empire possessed just about all the marbles, the Spanish Main, which meant the mainland coast of northern South America with the huge vessels laden with gold and silver that have been exploited from the backs of hapless, wretched slaves in some of the Mayan, Aztec, Incan, and other civilizations of that time. Indolent Spain, whose idiot king eventually saw the complete defeat of that nation. It's never been a great nation from the date that it was defeated by Sir Francis Drake and the British. But Spain has always been under the Roman Catholic Church from the day those people kicked out the Moors. Take a quick trip around the world. Tell me what you think of the plight of the average person living in India. 
What is the underlying cause of that person's plight? A nation which worships cows, that thinks cattle are holy. Bangladesh, all over Australasia, Southeast Asia, with the exception of Australia. If you think of Buddha, Shinto, Taoism, Confucianism, and all the various abstracts and offshoots of those religions, of Hinduism, of the Sikhs, of Islam, and then we come to the Kurds. Have you read recently about Kurdistan and the history of the Kurds? I looked it up and read a couple of articles, one of which was published long before 1914, just this morning. In all their history, the Kurdish people have never been a power or a separate political entity. They have tended to fractionalize down into tribal groups of about three, five, six thousand apiece. Some of the people in the northern part of Kurdistan cannot even communicate with those in the southern part. Their language dates all the way back to ancient Persia and Babylonia. There is a living legend among them that Nebuchadnezzar was actually the son of a leading Kurdish family of that time. They're identified with ancient Sumeria, Akkad, Babylon, Kalneh, with the ancient Tigris-Euphrates Valley, but more the hinterlands and the drainage of the Euphrates River and the Tigris River up in the mountains. And they have been a mountainous people, and primarily about half of them have been nomadic. From that time to this, they have adapted to the religion of Islam many of their ancient heathen customs. They believe, for example, that Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus were all very prophetic, uh, holy men, good men, men of God, but they also believe in Muhammad, who was God's prophet. But together with that, they also have certain of these old tribal heathenistic superstitions where they believe that at all times there must be a manifestation of the deity somewhere embodied in human being on this earth. So in the past generations, they have tended to set up one of their own leaders and to try to worship him. Through all of their history, they have been sort of the gypsies of the Anatolian and the Pamir region of Kurdistan, of that mountainous region up by the Black and Caspian Sea, they believe that thievery is a noble act. Very wealthy men can have multiple wives. We heard yesterday that a poor unfortunate woman who was hit on the head by a cargo piece dropped from an American airport, uh, plane rather, as relief aid, hit a mother of eight months on the head. She had nine other children. It does break your heart when you see the way these people live, what's happening to them. But then you look back into the religions of the world and how religion has shaped the history of nation after nation after nation, of how this nation, when it was born, was very fearful that George Washington would borrow from King George the same notions and that the army, including Hessians and those from Prussia who were imported into the United States to help us throw off the yoke of King George of England, might in fact propel King George Washington onto a new throne and the United States would become a monarchy under George Washington. There were those who feared that. And some of the framers of the Constitution feared that. And those who actually wrote those documents so feared it that they tried their best to prevent it 
And this nation was born under the idea of the separation of church and state. Now, to this day, even though it is not really a de facto situation in Great Britain, it is more of a ceremonial title. As you know, Queen Elizabeth is the titular head of the Church of England. She is actually the head of the Church of England, even though the Archbishop of Canterbury is the leading figure. But it was not until, if you read back in British history, the time that there was a rupture because of various marriages when actually one Jewish family who can trace its roots all the way back to David in the Bible ruled over the thrones of Russia, Bulgaria, Hungary, all the little states in and around that made up Germany of modern times, of France, of Belgium, of Holland, of Denmark, and of England, and they were all cousins and brothers and uncles and they were all interrelated. And they were all Jews. Now, I'm not about to launch off into the Kenites and the Jews and who they are. I'm just telling you, history is fascinating. But it was not until the rupture between the British ruling family and the Pope in Rome that Britain was launched upon a course which would take it to become the greatest empire the world had ever known, which would result in the birth of the concept of democracy, of parliamentary representative government, the signing of the Magna Carta, and eventually the establishment of colonies around the world, including the first colonies that became a part of the United States of America and that led to the birth of the greatest nation the world has ever seen. And you and I, with the freedoms that we enjoy here today, with Cornucopia America, with an opportunity for a man to work and to provide food, shelter, and clothing for his family, not fearing a despotic ruler, because you have a different religious concept than he does, or a different ethnic or racial background than he does, that he is able to absolutely gas you to death, and nobody in the whole world is going to interfere with the so-called civil war taking place within your borders. There is no other nation on the face of the earth in the history of the world that has ever allowed the Jew to reach the full level of his genius than the United States of America. Finally, after all of these many, many years, black America is beginning to emerge, and many of them, as you well know, look at Colin Powell as an example, and so many others I could call out and mention, are achieving absolute greatness in the United States of America. To many blacks, it's been all too long in coming, that which began back in about 1863 or before, but nevertheless, eventually, over the long haul, even that at the absolute extreme differences of the racial colors has become to be in the United States or is becoming to be in the country as a whole, although there are still pockets where it is not quite achieved as yet. In this country, we have the concept of religious tolerance. Let me ask you this question. How is it that a person grows from the desire to repent of one's sins to achieve contact with God, to be forgiven, to become a child of God and live the way of God, to stooping over in your Sunday go-to-meeting best and picking up a rock and trying to kill somebody with it. What is the metamorphosis, what is the process by which a very dedicated, extremely religious person can try to pick up a rock and kill somebody? Let's turn to the 8th chapter of the book of John for a moment, take a quick look something that happened in history. Let me give you a couple of little anecdotal stories, perhaps, as we go along. 
Let me give you one example that I remember very vividly that has to do with what I want to tell you about today. Back in 1956, my father and mother, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong and Loma D. Armstrong, my brother Richard David, my wife and I, had driven all the way through Europe down into Firenze, as they call it there, or Florence, Italy. In the main square of this beautiful old Italian city is a huge, big Catholic basilica. That's a level above and a little bigger than merely a uh, cathedral or a church. It's called Il Duomo, or the Dome. We were going to walk up the steps and go into Il Duomo on this beautiful August afternoon in sunny Italy. But my mother and my wife were stopped as they were going up the steps and told, Oh, no, no, you can't come in here, because they were both wearing summer dresses that the sleeves only came to about here, and they were both bareheaded. So apparently my mother, well up in her 60s or early 70s, was a sexual object. My wife, eight months pregnant with our son David, who was seated there not too far from her, was a sexual object because they could see that much of her arms. Well, they had to go back to the car and get sweaters, even though it was very, very hot, and then stop at a little kiosk, I think, or maybe they had a kerchief in the car, I forget, and buy a little kerchief or get one of some kind and just plop it on top of their head. And then, properly attired, they get into the church. Meanwhile, while they were doing this, my brother and I were standing on the front steps waiting for them, being actively solicited by a pimp to see if we wanted to go to bed with a prostitute. What a fascinating irony. Church, Il Duomo. Holy, holy, holy. Zot you with holy signs. Catholic Church, we're going to get holy. We're going to go in there and see the bodies of a lot of old, decrepit, dead, buried saints. They even have, believe it or not, innovative, innovative people in Europe. It's not just in Italy, but all over Germany and even in England. In the coffins where they got relics of some of these saints. They have now manufactured lids that open up, but they, you know, bowled them down pretty good, and they got slots in the lids. You can give the money directly to the saint. You can actually see the old mummies in there. You can go by and tuck the money in and stick it in on top of the mummy. It's one way to raise money. Isn't that ironic that you get solicited by a pimp for a prostitute on the steps of the same church, they won't let my mother, with all of her gray-haired dignity, walk in with merely a flowery, summery, short-sleeved dress. Religions of the world are responsible for the things that are happening to people in Iraq, in India, in Cambodia and Laos, in Central and South America. There have been more people who have been starved to death, butchered to death, stabbed, cudgeled, burnt, shot, garroted, and hung in the name of God and the name of religion than for any other cause. The Holy Joes that killed more people than all the military geniuses put together. That basically is an ethnic and a religious war going on over there in Iraq because the Kurds have never wanted to be subject to anybody, and yet in their entire history, they have never created their own government. If you look at their history, they have been ravaged by a list of nations that must be two feet long. And right now they exist in increments in about six or seven different nations. Russia, Armenia, and certain of their southern provinces, Iran, Iraq, Syria, southern Turkey, Kurdistan actually just sort of spreads all over those mountains up by Lake Zab and the whole area there. and uh, There are probably around three million of them. 
Uh, one of the old articles I read this morning published pre-1914, there were only 1,700,000 of them at that time. I imagine there are far more than double that number by now, but it's a pitiful state in which they find themselves. And yet you look back at religion, the religions that people have adopted and have become subject to, and what it has caused. In the 8th chapter of the book of John, we read of how Jesus was teaching, and the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman taken into adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said, Master, now it's always interesting, we've made a lot of body comments, and I won't do that today. I guess men can run faster when they, quote, gird up their loins. Uh, you'd think it would be the other way around, but they didn't wear the kind of clothing we do, where a man's trousers are down around his ankles, and a woman can run a whole lot faster with a skirt, and a man can with his pants down. They've alleged that that is true, but nevertheless, they caught the woman, not the man, which I look upon as a little bit of a... Uh, a chauvinistic bent to this religion, don't you? I mean, if you can grab one, why not the other? Well, we'll see, because I had a lot of fun with this in my book called Peter's Story, and I think that there's something quite obvious in the text. Verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground. It was probably a fairly polished floor that had a lot of accumulation of dust upon it. And with one finger, he could make characters that they could easily read or see. As though he was musing or lost in thought, as though he heard them not. And when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself, looked at them, said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, there's got to be some relationship between that comment and what he was writing. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one. Now when they heard, it also means in the Greek when they understood. And the understanding came with them stooping to look over his shoulder at what it was he was writing. Notice even to this point their proud pecking order. They went out beginning at the eldest, because they couldn't all gather around, fall over each other and see at once, they could only see one at a time. I think he was writing names like Judas, Dash, Miriam, Aaron, Dash, maybe uh, Rebecca, whatever. I think he was linking names of some of those very self-righteous sinners dressed in full religious garb, that was revealing to them some of their own secret sins, which to me would have to fall in the same category of the very sin of which they were accusing this woman and demanding that Jesus say that she should be stoned. So they, convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? He must have enjoyed that. I just think Jesus must have had some fun in his life. You know, this would have been one of those fun times. To put a posturing, pompous, religious fanatic in his proper place and just embarrass him out of his gourd. To see those guys blush crimson, throw their robes around them, snort, walk out trying to salvage their ruptured dignity when they knew that the young guy that was kind of trying to climb the ladder to become as priestly as his right reverend, holy, great mucky-muckness uh, was going to read the same name he did, that must have been a real embarrassment. And I think Jesus must have enjoyed it. I enjoyed thinking about it. They went out one by one, and he said, Where are your accusers? She said, There is no man. 
And so Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't condone it. He forgave it. He could see her terrible embarrassment and her shame. Then said Jesus to them, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees said, You bear record of yourself. This is another occasion, another confrontation, another meeting. It didn't take place immediately, as John tends to indicate. They all left. There must have been some other setting, some other moment for this conversation. Jesus answered, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. I know where I came from and where I go. But you cannot tell where I came from and where I go. You judge carnally according to the flesh. I judge no man. Yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one to bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. And they said, with a double meaning and with an attempted slight or a slur because of the rumors that had dogged Jesus and followed him all of his life from the time of the rumors that Mary was expecting before the actual marriage. They said, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. If you'd known me, you should have known my father also. These words spoke Jesus in the treasuries he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. He said, I will go my way, and you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. Then the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Whither I go, you cannot come. And he said unto them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, this society. I am not of this world. And I said therefore unto you, You shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And they said unto him, Who are you? Or basically, Who do you think you are? Jesus said, Even the same that I told you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things that I have heard of him. They understood not that he spoke to them of the Father. And Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, talking about the fact that he would be affixed to that upright pale and lifted up on Golgotha, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me, the Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Notice verse 30. There must have been a crowd of, who knows, 20, 30, 40, 50, I don't know, maybe several hundred. As he spoke these words, many believed on him. Now, apparently this expression, believed on him, is about the same that we hear constantly in Protestant evangelical so-called Christianity. Believe on Jesus and you shall be saved. That is, believe that he is somebody important or believe that he is the Christ. Obviously, as we will see, they did not believe him. They believed on him or about him. They held him in great esteem or respect, but they weren't prepared to accept his message and what he said. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, that is, if you live by what I'm teaching, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Uh-oh. Now that stung them, because they didn't want to admit they were not free. 
people in bondage to a religion, which really in turn makes them in bondage to their own pride and vanity to themselves, and ultimately to Satan the devil, want to feel free, that they're not really in bondage. They answered, we be Abraham's seed. So they had this national pride, the racial and religious pride of the Jews, and were never in bondage to any man. Isn't that a stupid statement to come out of the mouth of a Pharisee when his nation had been ravaged all the way from time immemorial? They'd been in Babylonian captivity and had come back under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. And then during the days of the Ptolemies and the Seleus today, either the Syrians or the Egyptians had occupied Palestine year after year after year after year. And at the very moment they're making the statement, they are occupied by the Romans. Interesting statement. We were never in bondage to any man. How do you say we shall be made free? Jesus answered, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now, just to throw in a thought, of whom today are you in contempt? Who do you believe is inferior to you, doctrinally, spiritually, racially, nationally, ethnically, whichever way you want to slice it, in whatever category you would like to pick, who, where, what, what group, what, what race, what religion, what part of the world, what part of our own society? or what individuals or person, one individual within that group or society, is it of whom you are in contempt, you hold to be beneath yourself. If there is such a person or a group, that is a sin. And you are a servant to that sin. And that sin is a great and an enormous sin. Not just a little or a small sin, but one of the greatest sins of which humankind is capable of committing is the sin of intolerance, of contempt, and of hatred because of party spirit or because of religious vanity. Whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me. He's saying this to those who believed on him, because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. His words were always poignant with these secondary and tertiary meanings and significance. He's talking about their father, Satan the devil, and they knew that. That really got at them, but they wanted to try to blind their minds to that. They answered and said, Abraham is our father, trying to ward off those stinging rebukes that he had just sent their way. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you, and they were the religious leaders, they were the religious sectarians, they were the religious pompous faction of society that had the power of life and death over them that came into the synagogue, and yet they were plotting his murder. You now seek to kill me. You know, Jesus did not beat around the bush a lot. I know that he said a lot of things that seemed to have a secondary meaning, didn't seem to be the same way we'd talk today said something kind of vague, I, I speak that which I heard from my father, but you do the deeds of your father. You know, that's no, not normal conversation the way you and I would talk to some antagonist or somebody that's trying to give us a religious argument. Yet, nevertheless, once in a while, he just really said things exactly the way they were, didn't he? You seek to kill me. Now, isn't that something, if you ever hear somebody that is in a conversation, they're just making polite talk, and the other guy says, why do you hate me? 
when you really know that's what's going on, but they're trying their best to be polite. It's just not the way you normally talk to people. But Jesus did. You seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father, meaning Satan the devil. They said unto him, We be not born of fornication, laden with all kinds of meaning. You are illegitimate. You are the bastard child of an unknown father, a mother who was not married. We are the proud remnants of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were saying, Who do you think we are? And then elevating themselves in religious vanity. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Oh, but they had believed on him only a little short conversation earlier. Verse 31. Yes, people in this world claim they believe on Jesus. But there are an awful, an awful lot of people who would not sit still in any church pews you know of in this world if a minister were to preach a sermon with these words coming right out of the pulpit to that individual and laying it upon that congregation and letting them know what their sins are. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not because you're not of God. They answered the Jews and said, Don't we say well that you're a Samaritan? That's a racist slur. A Samaritan with a dark, swarthy people brought in by the Babylonians into the northern province of Italy and had been put in the former villages and homes of the people of Judea and Samaria, as it was eventually called, the Samaritans. And that was a despective term or a racial slur. Are you not a Samaritan and have a devil or are demon-possessed? A terrible, blasphemous, religious slur. Jesus said, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and you do, do dishonor me. Now the controversy raids on a little longer, and I'll skip just a little bit ahead. And it says in verse 58, after they said, You're not yet fifty, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. There was a melee. They were occupied in stooping over and trying to grab rocks. People were yelling and screaming, no doubt. His disciples gathered around him, and I imagine he pulled the hood of the cloak around him, and they all wore similar clothing. And I've told you time and again, the book, of course, proves it, and the Bible proves it in Isaiah 53, that Jesus looked like any plain, ordinary, average Jew of his day. And so, actually, in the melee and the confusion and the disciples gathering around him, he walked right out of the big riot beginning to ensue, and they're looking around, where is he, where is he? So you see how quickly... A person can be involved in a very deeply religious discussion in the treasury of the holiest building in the land, the temple, and just because of stinging rebukes that began to just really get their conscience going, 
They went from a person dressed in their full religious regalia, their Sunday go-to-meeting clothes with a tie all neatly knotted, to a person who would reach down and stoop to pick up a rock and try to kill somebody with it. What caused it? Religious hatred and a nagging conscience. Religious hatred and a nagging conscience. Jesus said in the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew, and we've quoted this during the Days of Unleavened Bread, Beware, he said, take heed, about verse 6, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And later on after the argument about you don't understand it is not bread, but don't you understand of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, verse 12, that it's not the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, doctrine has to do with belief and practice, both. Belief and practice. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were 180 degrees opposite. The Sadducees were given to philosophy and esoterica, contemplation, and so on, a very rigorous life. But the Pharisees were more like an ultra-right-wing conservative organization, like some of our southeastern United States Bible Belt religions. They were sort of like the Mary Baker Eddy Christian science philosophy on the one hand and the ultra-right-wing Baptist elements on the other hand. Yet Christ said, beware of the leaven of both of them. So what was the leaven that was common to them both? It was vanity. Religious Vanity. Now, isn't it a strange process how it is that a person who is trying to seek God comes at a place in their life, and this is the uniqueness of the Christian religion. First of all, there may be other religions, and to some extent the Catholic religion does involve itself in proselytizing or preaching, teaching, distributing literature, at least in this country. But think about anciently when the Catholic religion went out to allegedly convert the heathen. The many, many decades and literally hundreds of years during which crusades took place. When Islam was spreading across the basic known world by the edge of the sword. The concept of the Japanese during World War II who looked upon Hirohito as a direct descendant of the sun and wanted to bring all of Asia under the protective wing of the Japanese government Asia for the Asiatics, but of course under the more formal uh, version of Buddhism of the Japanese, which is the Shinto priesthood. Many religions have tried to achieve converts at the edge of the sword. The Spanish Inquisition did so. Uniquely, in a sense, in the United States of America, we have the opportunity, although American evangelism is spread around the world, in Australia, South Africa, Britain, France, all over Europe, and indeed in Russia and around the world. And there are many American televangelists on radio in many of those countries or by satellite and by various methods. I remember even during the 50s, during the depth of the Cold War, some of them were trying to float hot air balloons across the Iron Curtain laden with Bibles and getting people to don donate money for that kind of a program. And by and large, as you probably well know, in the entirety of Central and South America, in all of Spain and Portugal and basically in France and in much of southern Germany, people do not own books like I have here in front of me, a Bible. The Roman Catholic Church does not enjoin upon people to read the Bible. 
So it is basically an element of the United States which has been exported into all parts of the world. That a person may expound and explain, that he may reason, that he may use every conceivable uh, electronic, uh, graphic, audio-visual aid, prop, or help to reach a human mind and to have that human mind go through a process by which it, first of all, challenges, doubts, wonders about, and then begins to look and to try to disprove or to prove or to believe and to accept by a process of study, and then eventually accepts some points of doctrine and comes to a complete acceptance of a religious form, hopefully substance with it, and is ready to change their lives. Now, it is uniquely different in the United States among many families who believe that religion is something into which a person is born. I remember that I once visited the manager of radio station KOB in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we were sitting down and having a cup of coffee together, and he said, well, I was born a Catholic. Gave me an opportunity for a little minor lecture. I said, well, I understand what you're saying, but it's impossible to be born into the true church of Almighty God because you may only become a member of God's true church by repentance and forgiveness and by baptism and the laying on of hands and a receiving of God's Holy Spirit with a mature decision of your adult mind. You are not born into this or that church, but people in England are basically born into the Anglican church. Or down in Iraq, they're born a Sunni or a Shia Muslim because that's what their family before them happened to be. And people just accept the religion of their fathers. That's why I've gone out of my way for many, many decades and will continue to do so until the day I have preached my last sermon to tell people how thankful I am that I had to come to the truth of God by myself over great obstacles, having rejected the religion of my dad, my father, Herbert W. Armstrong, but never at any time when I was a teenager, an older teenager, and finally in my early 20s, after I'd been four years in the Navy and during the Korean War, merely accept with alacrity, without questioning, everything my father said. I began to read other religious materials and finally began picking up one or two of his booklets and looking into them to see if what he said was true and comparing it very carefully with my Bible. But I ran away to join the Navy and came back after already having put up my hand and saying, yes, I swear, and becoming a member of the armed forces because I didn't want my father to try to, in some way, uh, prevent that from happening. So I wanted to make sure it was a fait accompli by the time I came back to his office in Pasadena and told him. And even then he came halfway across the desk at me and said he was going to try to get me out. And I laughed at him and said, well, I'd like to see you take on the entire United States government, the United States Navy. I'm already in the Navy, and I'm due to leave down there at Terminal Annex on the train in about two hours, so I'll see you in about four years. And I took off. I did so to get out from under what I thought was not anything that I wanted a part of. I did not pay any attention to the Sabbath or the holy days or clean or unclean meats. I went along with my family when I was a child growing up because that's what they put on the table. But what I'm saying is that in the Navy I was eating pork chops twice a week like everybody else. And it has been something which has been important to me in later years because when I see the other day I caught about one second or two seconds of Richard and Oral Roberts. We were up there at Wagoner, Oklahoma. They were standing there together, and Oral Roberts had a microphone. He was talking away. He says, oh, there, right there, I felt his healing power. 
And old Richard's standing there, yes, yes, Lord, yes. They're feeling this healing power. Well, nonsense. But I mean, people look at Richard, and he didn't leave home and join the Army, Navy, or Marines and decide that a Laurel didn't know what he was talking about and then go back and study into Christian science and Seventh-day Adventism and every other religion and finally begrudgingly say, well, what do you know? My father's got it right. He's preaching exactly what the Bible says. He just grew up and went along with a good thing. I just don't want people to think that of me. I know people think it because if they haven't heard me explain it, they just think it. Probably some people who heard me explain it think it. I can't help that. I happen to know what is true and what is not. There is a process by which you and I came to want a total change of life, to get rid of our sins, to be totally forgiven so that our sins would never be mentioned to us again. Isn't it strange that even in some church groups, and I won't go off and develop this, which I could for the next couple of hours because I want to bring this to a quick conclusion, can even within the United States of America a nation founded on the concept of the separation of church and state, where the ecclesiastical authority may not have police state authority over you, the authority, the authority of surveillance, the authority of invasion of privacy, the authority of interrogation, the authority, the authority to intrude into your private life to a degree that you are not your own. Isn't it amazing that people who start out in search of a change of life and receiving the Holy Spirit of God and becoming a child of God and reading all the scriptures about how you're to be made free in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be in bondage to no man. The Jews boasted that, but they truly were not. But the Apostle Paul certainly said that over and over again in his writings, that there is not now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, but we are free in Christ. And that's what we wish, that people eventually will give themselves voluntarily over into the hands of a dictator and say, take my mind, take my brains, take my volition, take all my decision-making factors and make up my mind for me, because here I stand utterly convicted that unless I stay in your good graces, I will never make it into the kingdom of God. When you and I both know that you can make it into the kingdom of God whether I drop dead of a heart attack before this sermon is over. And you need to know that right down to the ground. That your salvation does not depend upon any interaction between you and me or interaction between you and your wife or husband or spouse or child or daughter or any other human being but depends upon you and your Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth in heaven above. Right quickly in 1 Corinthians 13, just a quick reminder, we know a lot of these scriptures by heart. I've said before, time and again, I'll repeat it again, doctrine is not where it's at. Now, I'll quickly say, don't misunderstand. Yes, God says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And the Holy Spirit was sent as the other comforter to lead us into all truth. And surely the Lord Eternal will do nothing but that to reveal his secret to his servants, the prophets. And we need to be a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Yes, I know all of those points. And we should learn, and we should study. But I don't care how much you learn and how much you study and how many big notepads, and I've got bound volumes filled with notes from college. i got more sermon notes, I suppose, if I put them all together in one file, to be that fat. 
doesn't gain me a single medal, doesn't even get one stripe on a spiritual campaign ribbon, doesn't mean anything unless what happens, what it says in this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians is true. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and some people desire with all their hearts the, quote, gift, end quote, to stand up in front of a lot of other people and babble and make those people think they know what they're saying or they've got a spiritual gift. And Paul was dealing with that. And have not charity, and really should be charitable love, that agape love, which is an outgoing love of serving, sharing, helping, and of sacrificing to help the other person. I am become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and there are people who would dearly love that. I just looked at a little piece of something somebody handed me down in Florida today that claimed that the United States is the beast, for pity's sake. And tore it up after a couple of minutes and said, oh, no, here's a cheap little track. Some guy decided to appoint himself a prophet. He said several years ago, God told me this and God told me that, and he scratched it out on a mimeographed piece of paper and slipped it to me at the end of my sermon. The other day, I'm preaching a sermon about holy places. And I'm talking about holy time. And I finished up my sermon on the Day of Unleavened Bread out in Phoenix. A guy came up to me and handed me a piece of literature. He says, by the way, you're keeping Passover on the wrong date. Here I'd gone through the whole sermon showing how that is a wrong point of view and so on. Didn't do any good. So wherever I go on a personal appearance campaign, people are already slipping me. They're always slipping me all kinds of charts and graphs and prophetic scenarios and little booklets and things they publish. That I guess they want me to publish them and help make them famous or something. So I take a look at them. Sometimes I don't even look at them, but they usually go into the round file. And it says here, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries. Now, boy, do we like mysteries. Remember the program, I Love a Mystery, and now there's unsolved mysteries on television. And people say, hey, i got a secret. Boy, you're all ears. Matter of fact, a lot of people are so paranoid that a group of people whispering, they walk by, they're positive, they're talking about them. Like the woman that got up in the middle of a football game when the huddle took place, because she knew they were talking about her. Though I understand all mysteries... And all knowledge, now that's an awful lot, all knowledge, that's encyclopedic, beyond belief. And yet people crave that. They lust after it. They talk to each other trying to play one-upsmanship to convince the other person, I have more knowledge than you do. And little by little comes this spiritual pride. If you have all of that, but you don't have agape love... Love that is outgoing, serving, sharing, helping, forgiving, tolerant love. You have nothing. Though I have all faith that I could remove mountains and have not that agape love, I am nothing. I won't read the entire chapter. It'll take too long. But that's the basic point. You ought to count your blessings every time you see these absolutely sickening, horrible pictures that we see on television of people living in something which is like an earthly hell of nothing, not even the barest means of survival, out there with snowflakes and, and icy particles coming out of the sky and a little piece of white plastic with a little precious daughter and a muddy slough down there sharing it with a donkey trying to get water for that family to drink. And just say, perhaps the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States of America are, in fact, sacred documents. Maybe Almighty God had something to do with those foundational documents that gave birth to this wonderful nation in which we have the opportunity to do what I'm doing right here today, to preach what I'm preaching today, and to believe what I believe, 
And if I can drive out of here past the First Christian Church and a Baptist Church and all kinds of churches and say, you know, there's some awfully good people that go there. Some of those people are probably better people than I am. It just isn't God's time yet to give them his truth. And I can love them and I can be tolerant of them. I don't have to hate them. I don't have to pick up a rock and try to kill them. But I could get out of this room and go to the airport. My wife and I could go to Jerusalem, where I just returned from. And we could go up to the Wailing Wall and walk up there on a sunny afternoon. My wife, again, in a short-sleeved dress. And a whole group of rabbis with black beaver hats and long black coats almost dragging on the ground with black silk stockings and black dusty shoes would stoop over and pick up a big rock and try to kill my wife. What is it that causes a sermon, a person, I'm sorry, in the process of religion to go from a person in their Sunday go to meet and best in all their religiosity to stoop over, pick up a rock, try to kill somebody if it isn't the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, plain old religious pride. Please, let's not be proud prideful of our religion, but grateful and humble, and be those who sigh and cry for all of the horrible things we see around us, and thank God every day, that's not my little daughter, my little son, or my little grandson lying over there in that mud in Kurdistan today, and let your heart go out to some other people and thank God for the United States and the freedoms we enjoy.